Welcome to Transformation Church RVA. This sermon is a part of our series called All the Single Ladies. We'll be examining the lives of three godly women in the Bible who make an impact for the kingdom. Over these three weeks, we'll find that God equips all of his people to serve him. Female and male, single and married, no matter their relationship status or their gender, everyone has a part to play in the kingdom. Good morning, Transformation. My name is Charles, and I'm an elder here. Please turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you. If you do not have one at home, this is our gift to you. We will read verses 10 through 17. Then Esther told Hathach go, to go, go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king has not called me to come to him for 30 days. So Hattach gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in a palace you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen just for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and pass for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights, or day. My maids and I will do the same, and then, though it is against the law, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If he, if I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. May God bless the reading of His word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Charles. I want to introduce you to Corey Rutledge. Corey is our uh, uh, director of student ministries and. He oversees all the production, so everything you get to see online, all of the audio, media stuff, he oversees all of that, and as well as kicking off um, a uh, ministry to our students, middle school and high school age, uh, in the coming weeks. I'm sure he'll talk more about that. How many of you know the Church of Tomorrow is important? Yeah. You're not going to be here forever. Yeah. Oh, you didn't know? Some of y'all look shocked. Yeah. From dust you came to dust you will return. Uh, And we all have a date. I'm not going to preach this morning, but all of you have a date. Okay? I got to get rid of this mic here in a second. All of you have a date with Jesus. Okay? Are you ready? Okay, that's it. That's all I got. So Corey's going to come up here now and close out our series. Would you give God praise for Corey? Uh, I like how he said close out, so see ya. Let's go. <laughs> um, so over the past several weeks, I'm Corey, by the way. Nice to meet you. If I haven't gotten to meet you, I'd love to talk to you. Um, you might see me running around. I like to have, I'm always have my head in the soundboard or something. It's not that I don't like you. It's that I'm really focused on what I'm doing. So pull me aside, talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. But over the past several weeks, we've been looking at several different single ladies in the Bible. We took a look at Lydia, 
and we heard from Angie from Grace Home Ministries, and we got to ask ourselves the question, what are we going to do with the gospel? Then the last week, we got to look at the story of Naomi, and we heard from Ms. Sharon, and we waded through the waters of having purpose in the face of great sorrow and how God is able to redeem situations that we see as hopeless. And this week, we find ourselves in the book of Esther. And quite frankly, we're going to be looking at a story that's filled with a significant amount of hardship and suffering. You know, have you ever been separated from someone that you love for an extended period of time? Like a day, two days, maybe it's your wife, maybe it's um, a best friend or whatever. I know for me personally, whenever I've been away from Emily for multiple days, I kind of start to feel like a longing to be back. It's not a fun experience. And the longer it goes, the harder it gets. And it's not like just like, oh, I want to be back around her. It's this like longing in the pit of your stomach that you're missing something, that something in your life is not there anymore. And you know, I think that's where we're going to find the Israelite people in the book of Esther. So a little background to start with. Um, We kind of got to set up the story that we're going to look at before we can really dig into it. So the book of Esther was written to the Jewish people while they were in exile. So this comes after Ezra and Nehemiah have already taken a group of people back to the homeland to rebuild Jerusalem, but some people have stayed back. They, they didn't go back with them. So that's where we find um, the people of the Jewish people when Esther is taking place. And while they're in exile they're finding themselves asking questions. And kind of the main question that they're asking is, are we still God's covenant people? Does God still care about us? And that's where this story happens. And there's a couple main characters that we see. We see Esther, book's named after her. She's an orphan. She was adopted by her uncle, Mordecai. And then we see Mordecai. And Mordecai, we're told, was taken into captivity Um, So these two, they're living in a foreign place amongst a foreign people, but what we're going to see is that we can hope because God's faithfulness is based on his promises, not on us. So we can hope because God's promises and his faithfulness are based on his promises, not on us. So with that, let's let's jump in. So the story of Esther begins, we're going to kind of like summarize, because you know, Carl said last week, like, he had four chapters, right? We got ten. Ten. So, let's go. So we got, we got the story begins with King Ahasuerus. Everybody say Ahasuerus. Bless you. Um, So King, we're going to call him King A. King A was throwing this big party for all of his high-ranking officials, and it was really, it was a war party. They were getting ready and preparing to go to war against Greece. And you know, at these war parties, basically what happens is everybody gets around a big table and they start drinking. And when they're all nice and drunk, they think that it puts them at this higher spiritual state where they're closer to the gods and they can make better decisions. How do you think that went? (laughs) Not too good. So, as I'm sure you're aware, decisions were made that were not the best, and King A gets this great idea. He's like, look, I'm going to get my wife, Queen Vashti, and parade her in front of all of these generals, and they're going to be 
awed and amazed, and they're going to be like, wow, yeah, we need to get on board with King Abe because he's got it going on. So i got a question for the guys. Um, have you ever demanded, I'm not asked, have you ever demanded that your wife do something for you? If so, how did that go? <laughs> we'll say not too good. <laughs> and it was no different. So basically, Vashti said in no small words, that, yeah, that ain't going to happen. I'm not doing it. And you know, there's several theories behind why that did, but it really doesn't matter. The fact that matters is, that, is what happens next. And the king gets angry. He was basically embarrassed in front of all of these people. So he gets angry, and at the counsel of his young men... I want to emphasize young here, young men, he casts Vashti out, um, banishes her, and that's, you don't see her pop up in the story again. But what the author is doing is he's setting up the story for us. And so we know that absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And the picture that we get of this court of the king is that it's not a good place to be. It's not pleasant to be part of the court of the king. The king makes massive decisions with lasting consequences based on his own whims and at the counsel of young men. So now we've got the setup for the story. And we continue on from there, and this, this idea of how bad this court is is only magnified as we continue. So he's advised again by these young men, hey, let's gather up all the young virgins in the land. Let's bring them together, and you're going to pick your favorite to be your queen. And that's why we, where we see Esther enter the story. We see Esther is taken from her home and she's taken into the king's harem. And you know, I want to be sure we grasp this, that this, this wasn't a good situation to be in. I think a lot of times when we read these Bible stories or we think back to our Sunday school days, we read the, the, the story of Esther and Esther's seen as the queen who's taken out of poverty and is placed in this royal situation. And that's just not the case. Esther was trafficked, and trafficking people was a common thing to happen in this time. I mean, every year, the king took 500 boys, castrated them, and made them serve in the local government because they listened better. So this is where we're at in history. Esther didn't have a choice as to be where she was. She was put in a situation, and now she's kind of just along for the ride. She doesn't know what's going to happen. All she's trying to do is survive. But it just so happens that Esther is the one that is picked to be king. Not king, queen. And that's where we move into the second phase of the story, what I like to call the second phase of the story. And you know, this entire time, there's kind of this like subplot going on while Esther's being, becoming the queen and going through that. While she's in the palace, Mordecai, her uncle, is kind of just chilling at the gate. He's kind of trying to see what's going on. He wants to know how Esther's doing. And while he's chilling at the gate, he hears about this plot to overthrow King A. And he tells Esther, who tells the king, who then kills the guys. And bravo, right? I mean, this is it's like a bad version of Survivor. Well, not, not so fast because there was also this, this guy named Haman. And Haman hated Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. Mordecai was a faithful Jew. Whenever Haman came by, everybody else would bow down in front of Haman except for Mordecai. 
because he would only bow down to God. So Haman was mad. He didn't like Mordecai, and, and this is where the rubber hits the road. Haman had just gotten this big promotion. The king had made Haman basically his right-hand man. He'd given him his signet ring. He's like, you can make the decisions that you want to make. And Haman cooks up this plot, not only to kill Mordecai because he wouldn't bow down to him, but to wipe out the entire Jewish population living in the kingdom. This wasn't good news. And this is where we find ourselves in chapter four. Esther and Mordecai are having a conversation Mordecai is informing Esther of what is about to happen, of what he's learned of. And they're talking back and forth between one of the eunuchs. And so in verse 11, Mordecai tells Esther, he says, the whole world knows, or this is Esther talking to Mordecai. She says, the whole world knows that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king has not called for me, so to come to him is more, has not called me to come to him in more than a month. So we see this long-standing rule that anyone who enters the court of the king, unless they're summoned, is basically just killed on the spot. Unless the king decides to hold out his golden scepter. But what, what do we already know about the king. The king makes rash decisions based on what he wants, not on any logical thing. So we find Esther, who's been forced into this situation, and she probably doesn't even like the king, and now Mordecai is saying, like, look, you've got to go into the king's court. You've got to go do this. Can you imagine what she was feeling? the thoughts that were going through her head at the time, the questions that she was asking herself. But Mordecai comes back and he says this in verse 13, don't think for a moment that you will escape there in the palace with all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at this time like this, deliverance for the Jews will rise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. What's more, and listen to this, who can say but that you have been elevated to the place for just a time as this? We'll read that one more time. What's more, who can say that you have been elevated to a place for just a time as this? And this is kind of where I want to sit for a minute. I mean, this is such a profound statement that Mordecai makes. And, you know, there's, there's several kind of unique things about the book of Esther. The foremost being that God is not explicitly mentioned a single time throughout the entire book. There's not one time in the book of Esther where the name of God is mentioned. You know, I was thinking that's kind of like making an Avengers movie without Iron Man and still calling it Avengers. Let me try again. That's like making an Andy Griffith TV show without Barney Fife. There we go. Okay. Now, now we're tracking. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. You cannot read the book of Esther and not see God moving throughout the entire story. There's no way. 
Esther found herself serving a self-righteous king who wanted her because she was hot, not because she was qualified. She was facing a crisis not only for herself by entering into a court of a king, but also for her entire people who are facing an extinction-level event. Esther was stuck between a rock and a hard place. But you know, we, being on this side of the story, have the luxury of kind of seeing it from a 10,000-foot perspective. And when we look at it from that perspective, we can see that God's promises are dependent upon himself, not on us. You know, the Jewish people, they were, we talked about they're living in captivity. And if we look back throughout the history of Scripture, the Jewish people don't kind of just like wind up in captivity. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Judges, but there's a phrase in the book of Judges. And again, the Israelites are the evil in the sight of the Lord. Like, so the Israelites wound up in captivity because they had disobeyed. But what we have to realize is that Esther was raised in captivity. She had never experienced the things that God had done for her people. I'm sure Mordecai had told her about those things, but there was never a time where Esther had lived amongst the Israelite people as a nation and seen God do the mighty works that he had done. So Esther doesn't have the luxury of the 10,000-foot view that we do. She was living in it. She was suffering in it. She had been ripped away from her family, from her adoptive uncle, and paraded before the king because he wanted a wife. You know, I think it's safe to say that Esther was probably asking several questions. Why is this happening to me? Why am I here? Where is this God of my ancestors that I've heard so much about? And here's the thing, we're no different. We ask ourselves those same questions almost every day. Where is my purpose? Why is it so hard for me to find someone who I can do life with? Why does it seem like all of the people around me who I, who I love are either dying or they're sick? Why does life feel like a cyclical wheel of disappointment? Why do I keep messing up, disappointing myself and the people around me? And you know, I think these questions hurt to ask sometimes. We don't like asking them, but we still feel them. But hear me when I say this. God's promises to his people are dependent upon himself, not on us. Sin has wrecked this world. It has torn apart everything that God intended to be good, and it left in its wake an aftermath that leaves people broken and longing. But church, we can hope because we know that God has made a way. We can hope because God's promises are dependent upon himself. And you know, when you really think about it, like if you were just reading the story and you didn't know what was going to happen at the end, Esther didn't stand a chance. Like she was a nobody. Yeah, she had been, she had been made the queen, but being making the queen really doesn't mean anything. It just means at the time, the king liked her. He hadn't seen her for 30 days. He wasn't even thinking about Esther at the time. So she was about to go into this court, put herself on the line. She didn't stand a chance. But, spoiler alert, 
it worked out. God was faithful to his people. God was faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham to make him into a great nation. He was faithful to us when he sent Jesus to die on a cross. And yes, life sucks. Sin sucks. Brokenness sucks. But God is faithful to his promises. And you know, that doesn't mean that we get to live this cushy life. This doesn't mean that we're not going to experience pain or loss or death or heartache. But what it does mean is that we get to experience eternal salvation with a broken road in between. So the Jewish people, they'd been in captivity for quite some time. Um, And that's one of the reasons that the book of Esther was written in the first place. It was to encourage them in their time of captivity. Because they had begun to forget who they are and whose they are. Esther, like we talked about, she had never experienced who God was. All she knew was the life of exile. You know, she probably heard stories about what God had done for her people. But that was it. There were stories. There was no evidence of that. They were split up amongst the nations. But she still pushes forward. And what happens next, it's kind of crazy. So Haman, so, so Esther goes into the court. The king says, and she asks for a banquet. The king says, yeah, let's do a banquet, right? So the day of the banquet, that morning, Haman had gotten this great idea the night before. He was like, look, I'm going to hang Mordecai on the gallows the morning of the banquet, and then I'm going to go to the banquet with the king. Well, the king couldn't sleep the night before the banquet, and he had, it's called like the book of records read back to him. And while he was reading the book of records being read back to him, he realized like, oh, wow, we never did anything for Mordecai. We never celebrated him. So he brings Haman in, the guy that hates Mordecai, and he's like, Haman, if we want to celebrate somebody and make them feel great, what should we do? And Haman's like, you talking about me? You talking about me? This is what you should do. Throw a parade, have somebody stand in front of him, say, this is what the king does for those he loves. (laughs) And you know what happens? He's like, oh, yeah, that's great. Do it for Mordecai. And Haman's the one that has to lead Mordecai through the streets while this is being said. So not only that, and then once they get to the banquet, Esther's basically like, hey, King A, this is what Haman's planning on doing, what you're going to do about it, and the king gets angry. I mean, angry enough where he hangs Haman on the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai. But here's the thing, like, for Esther to do that, like, that took guts. To walk into the throne room of a king where the standing rule was to kill someone who wasn't summoned... And then on top of that, while the king and his most high-ranking official are having a banquet with you, you then tell the king that that high-ranking official is about to kill an entire Jewish population. Guts. But here's the second thing that we need to realize about this story. Esther isn't the hero. God is. She isn't the main character. God is. You know, we, 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 we already talked about that God's not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the story. And yet, you can't read it 
without seeing him at the center of it all. He's making it abundantly clear that his faithfulness is not based on our merit. There's no limit to to the promises that he makes, and he sticks to those promises. You know, it's been a while. I think we can all agree on this. It's been a while since Jesus has been here. About 2,000 years. Like in the flesh. Two centuries. And when I think about friendships that I've had and how they've grown apart from those people or how I've grown apart from people that I've known in the past, there's two things that kind of come to mind when I think about what caused those friendships to kind of break apart. One of them is time and the other is distance. And there is a lot of time and distance between us and when Jesus was walking on this earth. And I think it's easy for us as Christians to forget the promises that God has given us. We have his word, yes. But still, we also forget who we are and whose we are. Our value and our worth and our identity shouldn't be wrapped up in who we are as a person, but it's based on the promises of God to us. Our value was made evident through the cross. So what does that mean? That means single mom, when you're at your last straw with your kids, you feel like everyone has turned their back on you and you don't see an end in sight. God's promises ring true and you have a hope because he made a way through Christ. Your value is seen through the cross. Single lady, when you struggle to find purpose, to find your niche, to feel wanted, your value is seen through the work of Christ on the cross, not through the eyes of those around you. So church, let's make it our mission to not tell people what they can or cannot do. Our mission should be to serve and encourage those around us by proclaiming the promises of God. By declaring the gospel to the lost, we should be encouraging all of our singles by helping them flourish in their God-given gifts. Let me make this abundantly clear. Single lady, single guy, your worth is not bound up in your potential spouse. Single mother, you are not less than because there is no longer a man in the picture. Your value and your worth is bound up in the fact that God created you and Jesus died on the cross for you. It's easy for us to ask ourselves the same questions that the Jews did. Are we still God's covenant people living in community with him? Let's let's break that down a little further Does God even care about me? Does my life matter? We're coming out of a season of of COVID, of physical and social distancing. We live in a broken world that's sinful and hopelessness 
is such an easy path to follow. But as believers, we hope because we know God is working in our lives even when we don't see it. Even when we can't see his fingers at work, when we're living in the mundane, when we're doing the same things over and over and over again, he's there. We saw that in Esther. She couldn't see it while it was going on. She had no idea. She was living apart from her people. And yet when we look at the beginning to the end of the book of Esther, we see God moving in ways that are incredible. We hope because we know that God's promises are not dependent upon us, but upon himself. We hope because we know that God's faithfulness is not based on our merit. Our hope is not tied to the value that we or others put on ourselves. Our hope is tied to the cross. Our hope is tied to the fact that God made a way even while we were still sinners. Our hope is tied to God's faithfulness to his promises, not to us. And friends, God never forgets his promises. You know, we, we, we sing the song, Thy will be done. And it's in moments like these when, when hope seems to be at its end, when hope seems to be lost, when we don't see a way forward, I think it's easy for us to say, what can we do about it? What should we do about it? Is there anything to do about it? And yet we can take courage that God's will is being done even when we don't see it even when we're not seeing thousands and thousands of people come to Christ, that God is still working in ways that only he knows. And we can take courage that even if we ourselves might feel meaningless, that God values us because he created us, that we are his children and that he loves us deeply. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you made a way for us. God, we thank you that you've given us examples throughout Scripture of how you have worked, even when not explicitly mentioned, that you are still working behind the scenes. God, we thank you that you displayed your ultimate love for us on the cross. God, that your glory was manifested through Jesus. And God, that our value is found in you, not in anything that we do. Bring us close to yourself. Ignite in us a fire that we would proclaim the gospel those who are without hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for streaming this audio from Transformation Church RVA located in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, 
check out our website at www.transformationrva.com.